You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Klein. On this week's episode, we welcome back David Columbia to talk about the recent crash of the crypto and NFT markets. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a few moments, we'll be talking about the fall of the cryptocurrency markets with David Columbia. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I will take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today is June 22nd, and we are going to again be talking about the House Committee on January 6th. Uh, Yesterday, June 21st, was the fourth of the committee hearings. Yesterday's hearings were an in-depth look at the way the Trump campaign tried to overthrow the election in 2020 by introducing alternative slates of electors and the ensuing campaign of harassment and pressure that was put upon election officials, many of them Republican election officials. So we are going to be talking about that and also the political fallout um, from these hearings and maybe also potential criminal charges that might emerge from these proceedings. Right. A couple of other important aspects of the hearing yesterday were the violence that the big lie has generated against election workers and against political officials. Very moving testimony by a local election worker and her mother in Georgia. But also the other thing, in addition to the alternative slates of electors, we had a couple people from Georgia testifying that Trump was trying to make them come up with votes that didn't exist so that he could win Georgia. Yeah, and you know, we all just lived through this a couple of years ago, and theoretically, uh, people who read the news should have known all this was happening, but um, a lot of it wasn't reported that thoroughly, and it was just a chaotic time, and I think the panel did a really good job of putting everything together and um, explaining how widespread, coordinated, and um, serious this uh, of an attempt at overthrowing um, the elections this was. I mean, even to the point where Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin was trying to get alternative slates of electors into Mike Pence's hands just minutes before uh, Mike Pence was supposed to certify the election on January 6th. I mean, in some ways, some of their shenanigans just looks like buffoonery and that they were just throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what would stick. But um, at the same time, it was coordinated and persistent, and it was a real attempt to overthrow the election. Yes, absolutely. You know, and yes, there are buffoons and there's chaos. But I mean, the basic strategy was some kind of version of throwing all the spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks. But there was a progression. They started with things that were within bounds, then things that are without bounds, and then the actual violence to disrupt the certification uh, of the uh, electors in the chamber of Congress on, on January 6th. So it was, they were trying everything, but they they progressed to the point of violence. They didn't begin there, but uh, that was the trajectory. Yeah, and the stories about threats of violence against election workers and everything from the, like the ground level election worker of this woman and her mother from Georgia, who received all these threats, had to move out of their house and everything, to these like high level state officials who were Republican and Trumpites who were constantly harassed and threatened. The crazy stories. I didn't realize how crazy the pressure campaign. I mean, you can't even call it pressure campaign. Like the they they were terrorized, like literally terrorized by by Trump supporters, and it was organized and coordinated. Yeah. And the people who testified were all under serious threat, I think. The election officials in Georgia and Rusty Bowers in uh, Arizona, diehard conservative Republican, also under significant threat. Yeah, that's one of the most terrifying things about this to me, that these people who were this thin line of defense between Trump and his plans to overthrow the election, the, you know, the thin line of defense between fascism and liberal democracy, um, were... Trumpites. They were Republicans who were very much leaned to the Trump side. In fact, didn't Rusty Bowers testify that he had hoped that Trump would win the election? 
Yeah, he's the one that, that kept invoking God. He's from, you know, the Mormon church. And he even said yesterday, I believe, that if we had uh, Trump versus Biden again, or if we do have that in 2024, he'll vote for Trump. Despite all of this, I'm, I've got to obey the law. I don't want to win. I'm not going to, you know, be part of anything that wins by cheating. Yet he's going to vote for somebody who tries to win by cheating. It made absolutely no sense to me, but that's the that that's this crazy mentality. And everybody's like praising him as if he's some saint. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My mind is like in contortions trying to understand the moral gymnastics that one would have to do to have these kind of positions. Um, but I'm also terrified that these were the people, you know, these Trumpite state officials, William Barr, Mike Pence, these were like the people that saved us from Trump. And that is like absolutely terrifying. Yeah, and not only not only they're not admirable in terms of their political orientation, their their ethics are not admirable either. I mean, I don't think anybody deserves credit for saying, "Oh, I'm looking at this situation. And I think that this is a, a sinking ship, and I'm going to get off at this point." You you don't deserve to be considered some some great paragon of morality. <laughs> yeah, and as I'm listening to these Republicans talk about how and why they stood up to Trump in these various instances, I kept thinking about when you read like a history book about the Nazis in the thirties and forties and how, you know, the Nazis were allied with all sorts of conservative elements, traditional conservative elements in the church and business. And there always people that bought into Nazism to some degree because it helped them personally, or they thought it advanced their politics or their business interests or whatever. You read about all these places along the, the, spiral toward barbarism all these places points at which various people are like well maybe this is going a little bit too far right but it's always a case of too little too late like they'd already bought into the nazis the nazis already taken over their dynamism was unstoppable by that point and each time when someone said well maybe i'm not cool with this it was like too little and too late and that's how i feel about all these these people who are being celebrated as like these the defenders of, of America and democracy by the committee. I mean, I get what they're the picture they're trying to paint. Right. But it's like way too little too late. Like you should have read the writing on the wall a long time ago about Trump, all of this pageantry with the committee and everything. It's like, this is nice that you're standing up to Trump now, but we should have done a lot more a long time ago because this shit is off the rails now. I mean, they're taking over state houses. They have plans to overthrow all future elections. Everyone's running on the big lie to get elected. Everything has shifted in, in their favor since 2020. And, you know, it'll look good in the history books that some people went down with the ship, like, fighting the good fight. But it just seems like too little too late. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think the committee is trying to, like create a division between good Republicans and bad Republicans, kind of to break off some support for Trump. But I tell you, from the Trumpite side, I think that they've kind of baked in the idea that Trump is likely to go down, at least if that's what Merrick Garland wants, and he'll at least be involved in litigation for a very, very, very long time. But I think what they're trying to do is continue the whole Trumpite project with other faces. The committee is trying to say, you know, okay, there's these, these good Republicans and, and the bad Republicans. We had this whole theme in one of the previous hearings. Oh, we are, we're team normal. And then there's Giuliani and, and Eastman and all of these people, but they're all corrupt. They're all Trumpites and they all aid and abet the whole thing until it comes to a certain point where either somebody's particular religious scruples intervene or they say, oh my God, this is a sinking ship. I'm a rat who's going to get off at this point. All of the Republicans that I see, with the exception of somebody like Cheney and Kinzinger, they want this Trumpite path to continue. What the, the committee is doing is not fighting that. I mean, they, they think they're going to get somewhere by pulling people away from Trump per se. You know, that's a really risky strategy. Let me, let me say this other thing, though, about why, why there is so much 
reluctance among Republicans to break with this whole thing, not only break from Trump, and that might be happening to some extent, beginning to get like editorials in in right-wing newspapers like Wall Street Journal and so forth that are basically saying Trump's a criminal and parties should have nothing to do with him. They say it gently, but that's what they're saying. Okay, but the thing is, why is there such reluctance to break with Trumpism? It's because of the base, and it's not just about getting elected. It's because a lot of people are under threat. I mean, I heard Carol Lennon, who's a, a Washington Post reporter, and you know she's written co-authored a book about all of this stuff, and she says, you know, she knows for a fact that Republican people in Congress and so forth say, I can't do X, Y, and Z, and go against the hardcore of the Trumpite base because they're, they're after me. They're threatening me, my wife, my kids, and so forth. So this is, when you say it's, it's too late because it's gone too far, that's part of what it is. It's gone too far. They can't break away from this. That might even explain somebody like Pence. Trump clearly wanted him hanged by the noose uh, on January 6th, and he, he's not breaking with Trump in more of a sense than he already has. Why? It could be the the magnitude of the threat that he's under. So it's possible that Trump might go to jail or just be a persona non grata politically after this investigation or after Merrick Garland is done with him. We don't know. Um, But it it is clear that um, right now Trumpism is selling politically. That's what people are running on. They're running on the big lie. The Texas state legislature just passed this incredibly fascistic um, party platform based around the big lie and homophobia and transphobia and all sorts of crazy shit. So we know that Trumpism is selling like hotcakes now, regardless of whether they take out Trump himself. Yeah. You know, I I wouldn't say it's all a lost cause, though, because, first of all, there's a lot we can do to to, to fight this. But also, it is not clear that the whole establishment, the Trumpite people in various positions of power and Fox and the other news media, it's not clear to me that if Trump goes down, that they're going to all be able to come together and agree or even work out in any way exactly who and what follows. And given the ambitions of particular individuals and factions that might develop and so forth, and also given like the cult status of Trump himself, it's not clear to me that they're going to be able to continue this to the degree that they have. Although, look, fascism, proto-fascist sentiment have been there for uh, well before Trump and kind of basically always... So, I mean, the problems are not going to go away, but I, I, it's not clear to me that they're going to be manifesting at the level that they have been if he goes down. It, it was not clear to me when before the, the hearing started, like, what the committee was trying to do. And clearly they're trying to say there's good Republicans and bad Republicans. But the other part of it is they are clearly putting pressure on Merrick Garland. They want him to indict Trump on multiple counts. The language that they use is language of statute. You know, here you can get him on this and you can get him on that and the other thing, and you had better do so. And a lot of the discussion has been taking that turn in the committee, commentary on the committee, as they've revealed more and more and more. So it wasn't clear to me that this was all going to be about Trump, nor was it clear to me that it was going to be really a very systematic laying out of all the various things that were done to try to keep Trump in power, despite the fact that he lost the election, you know, but that's what they are basically saying. It was a gigantic conspiracy, always involving Trump, you know, involving this person in this respect, that person in that respect, culminating with the insurrection on January 6th. Okay, but it's all it's all about Trump's total effort to stay in power despite having lost. That wasn't clear at the beginning. And the other thing is because they're so precise and they're so well organized in their presentation, it's very clear that they're trying to change minds within the American people. And they're, you know, they're, they're doing a good job in a certain sense. Before the hearing started, 40% of the population, according to Paul, thought that the committee was fair. 40% didn't. Now it's the same 40% who say no, but pretty much everybody else says, yeah, they're doing a good job. They're fair. What they haven't been able to do is change opinion much, if at all, 
on the question of should Trump be tried for, for crimes. Well, we'll have to see what happens next time. That's all the time we have for this segment. I am sure we will we will be returning to this topic many times in the future. Uh, up next, our conversation with David Columbia about the fall of cryptocurrency. Regular listeners will recognize the voice of our guest today, David Columbia. David Columbia was our guest on episode 63 back in March of this year, and we talked with him about the politics of Bitcoin. He's written a fascinating book called The Politics of Bitcoin, Software as Right-Wing Extremism, and we had a long discussion about the cyber libertarian ideology behind cryptocurrency. Well, not long after that episode, the cryptocurrency markets crashed, and I wrote to David and said, hey, would you want to come back on the podcast? Maybe you have some more things to say about the fall of the crypto markets, and so we recorded this episode. But at the same time, uh, David said to us, hey, I recently heard your episode where you critiqued Noam Chomsky's view on Ukraine, and I loved it, and maybe we could also talk about Noam Chomsky's linguistics, because David Columbia is a professor of English, and he's taught linguistics and has a lot to say about Chomsky's linguistics. So we actually recorded two separate conversations, one about the fall of the crypto markets and one about Noam Chomsky. And today's episode is going to be about the fall of the crypto markets. And very soon you will hear another episode where we talk with him about a totally different topic, and that is Noam Chomsky's linguistics. So stay tuned for that. So, so David Columbia, you're a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Right. You teach digital studies, contemporary American literature and culture, literary theory, philosophy, linguistics. You have two books out, The Cultural Logic of Computation, which has to do with linguistics, I assume. In part, and also something to do with Chomsky, which I will happily talk about. Great. And then the book we talked about last time, The Politics of Bitcoin, Software's Right-Wing Extremism. And we'll make sure we link to that previous episode in case listeners want to check it out. Great. Um, so, so thanks for being with us. Since we last talked, uh, in mid-May of this year, the cryptocurrency markets crashed. And like on May 12th, the, the New York Times reported that $300 billion in crypto cash had been wiped out. Some cryptocurrencies like Luna, um, the value of the coin fell to zero. Uh, Luna had been at uh, a total valuation of $40 billion, and within a few days, it had fallen to zero. So were you surprised at all to see this happen? Well, I was I was certainly surprised by the specific way that the crash happened and, and when it happened, because there's just no predicting how this stuff, you know, what's going to happen in these markets. But the fact that there was a crash and the fact that it happened in the sector of the market that it happened did not surprise me very much. I think most crypto critics have felt that, um, first of all, we feel like the whole market is so manipulated and so unstable that crashes all over it are kind of inevitable. And some of them are not as quick as what we saw in uh, you know, in the past few weeks, but even, you know, Bitcoin itself has arguably crashed pretty severely over the past six months, right? It's lost about 50% of its value, which in most markets would be considered a crash. And of course, other cryptocurrency tokens go to zero all the time. They're just, you know, people don't hear about them except within the crypto world. So they don't even comment on them, but crashes happen all the time. Now, why did this crash happen over in Luna? Well, Luna, Luna and Terra, its associated token, are part of this market called stablecoins. And the stablecoin market is really fascinating in that it is, um, it exists because it is hard to move your money from what people know as cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin or Ethereum, into national currencies like the dollar or the British pound. There's a lot of there's a lot of you know the interface between that world and the banking world, precisely because the banking world is heavily regulated, um, is is difficult. It, it, it can't. It's very hard to move your money. I mean, it, it's quite possible, but it's hard to move money in and out of the between those two realms. And so the crypto promoters created this th these things called stablecoins that are meant to serve as proxies for national currencies, and they are absolutely fascinating. So you ha you have these tokens that. If you go into one of the exchanges where you can buy and sell cryptocurrency, like Coinbase, Binance, all these other sort of well-known exchanges, which is where people go to make money by trading cryptocurrency, um, typically what they do is they buy or sell their cryptocurrency, and when they sell it, they sell it for these stablecoins. And the stablecoin 
is said to be in some kind of determined relationship with a national currency. So the most obvious thing is one of these tokens equals one U.S. dollar. And you think because the crypto markets are so volatile, the thought is made a profit in my Bitcoin and now I sold it. When I say I sold it, I mean I moved it into a into a stable coin. I don't mean that I moved it into a dollar. I mean that I want to be able to hold on to the value of that trade and not be exposed to the volatility of Bitcoin. And the you know we could talk forever about these stable coins because in so many ways they reveal incredible falsehoods that the entire crypto market is based on. These tokens are not cryptocurrencies in the way that we typically understand them. They aren't things that you mine and that are quote unquote decentralized and that anybody can you know create. They are held by a small group of people who issue as many of them as they need at any given time. They are technically backed by some kind of other token of value, which is supposed to be a U.S. dollar or some other national currency, which, you know, right there, you're like, well, wait a minute. So the whole value of the cryptocurrency market depends on the value of these underlying dollars that you have in it when you said this whole system was supposed to be independent of the national currency system. There is something very odd going on there. So, but let me just go quickly. What people think of as stable coins, the most famous of them is Tether, works in a fairly straightforward manner, at least on paper, that the people who run Tether, which is a company called Bitfinex, which is an extremely shady company, technically they issue a million Tethers at a value of one Tether per dollar, and they put a million dollars into their bank account. So they're one-to-one backed by actual dollars. Now, it's turned out that that keeps being false, right? And Tether... Bitfinex refuses to be fully audited, and this has made people all the way up to, you know, reputable financial journalism places like Bloomberg have, you know, tried to find out where is Tether's underlying currency, and it turns out they can't find it. And the New York Attorney General took action against Bitfinex, and the terms of that settlement are very obscure, and most of us feel like this is the place where the market is going to fall apart. There's also... When you start to try to track the trading in cryptocurrency markets, places like Bitfinex, when they they issue these tokens at very interesting times, like especially right after the market plummet, the price for Bitcoin plummets, all of a sudden there'll be several million dollars worth of tethers being issued, and suddenly the Bitcoin market will go up. And, and all this stuff just seems like it is part of a giant manipulation scheme. And in truth, to the degree that Tether has let anybody see their audits, they don't actually hold dollars in their bank accounts. They hold what is called commercial paper, meaning corporate bonds, some of which are very high quality and they're functionally you know, very similar to dollars. But a lot of what they hold is not at that level of investment security. And it's very questionable. And to some extent, they even seem to hold Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency tokens in their accounts and claim that that is backing. But since the the relationship between tethers and the Bitcoin is so complicated and so tightly tied together that that would actually seems to violate what people understand to be their charter. Now, there's a lot more you could say about tether, and I think many of us feel like that is the place where the cryptocurrency markets could fall apart. And both the EU and the US have started to talk about regulating the entire stablecoin market, and I think that would be extremely welcome. It's very unclear. I mean, in many ways, these things provide banking services, but they don't provide any of the protections that banking services are required to protect. And we could say a lot more about that, but putting that aside for the second, um, Terra is a special kind of stablecoin, right? Or Luna, whichever one of the two pair was the actual putative stablecoin. They are called algorithmic stablecoins. And rather than simply putting a dollar into the bank for every one token that they issued, they had, you know, an algorithm, quote unquote, that was supposed to magically adjust the price of one of the tokens according to the other token and its relationship to Bitcoin. And I think many people feel like this was always just smoke and mirrors. Like it, it, it was just some crazy scheme 
you know, people have investment schemes like this all the time. You know, my AI scheme is going to figure out how to beat the market and so forth. But it was all a way of not even trying to have the dollars in the bank that would allow your token to remain at the level it was supposed to maintain. And at some point, some of the other events happening in the market, some of which have to do with what's happening in the rest of world financial market, caused that dollar level to break in the in the stable coin. And that just caused a cascading series of crashes that eventually drove the price of the stable coin to zero, which, you know, theoretically should not be possible. Like the whole point of the coin is that it's supposed to maintain its value of a dollar. Right. So it seems like a lot of the broader cryptocurrency market has been functioning based on the idea that you could take your cryptocurrency and park it in stablecoin and stablecoin was as good as a dollar and once it becomes clear that stablecoin is not as good as a dollar then you're like hell you know if i'm worried about crypto i'm especially worried about this stuff and that's how it can fall to zero, and that's why it did fall to zero. Is that, am I getting that right? That is absolutely right, and I, and I should add something, which is a major use for these stablecoins is not simply the kind of trading we've been talking about, which sounds pretty ordinary, but the use of leverage, right? The use of borrowed money to magnify the bets you're making. And of course, once we have, you know, just as we had in the 2008 financial crisis, completely unregulated leveraged instruments out there that are just betting on all kinds of stuff. So, you know, you the price of Bitcoin went down $10, but your bet, because it was 100 times the amount of money you had invested, went down $1,000, right? And I think that is clearly what happened in the Terra Luna thing, where, where and these are all over the place in the crypto, right? Hugely leveraged bets. Um, in fact, some people say that leverage is the real reason these stable coins exist. And, and boy, do I not recommend people to even if people are going to dip their toe into cryptocurrency, which I don't recommend, but boy, do not do not borrow on margin or leverage to, to do that. You know that is. And where 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 is the where is the leverage? Where's the funding for this coming? From the banking system, you know, the normal banking system, or what? I mean, it's coming from the providers of the crypt of the of the stable coins. That's part of what is so troubling about it, right? They they're basically saying, okay, you you secure some crypto assets with us, and we'll give you a loan to to buy up more stuff. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. They play the other side of the loan, too, because they guarantee some of them. And I think Terra Luna may have been part of this, but they quote unquote guarantee people unbelievable loan rates. Like if you if you choose to lend out your own tokens to somebody, they like say you can get 20 percent a year or something on these loans. And this is something that the SEC and others have have looked into because, you know, guaranteeing insane loan rates is pretty much a, it's a good red flag that there is something going wrong in this in this marketplace. Right. There must have been a number of people who were aware of this and then realized, okay, the day of reckoning is coming. I got to pull out. Some of them were too late. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it is, it, you know, another of the things that's very interesting is because all the transactions on the blockchain and so forth are public, the, the sophistication of the tools people have to monitor trades on them is very, very high. And I think it's it seems pretty clear now that a small number of traders, you know, authentic traders in Terra and Luna or whatever, saw some indications that the break was coming with the dollar that they're supposed to keep to and saw a chance to profit and just swooped in. And the way, you know, algorithmic and high frequency traders do all over the markets, they're just like, oh, here's a chance to make some money. And, you know, there's no circuit breakers. There's not very much oversight. They, people short these stable coins all the time. They are very sophisticated investors. And so, you know, there's all kinds of ways to, to make a killing. And of course, to anticipate a further question, who gets killed in this? It is not these big sophisticated investors. It is ordinary people who have been persuaded to put their own small amounts of money into these markets, which is the last thing in the world they should do. And and which is a main reason why there's so much advertising and so much hype and so much deception in these markets, because they really need more and more people to put their ordinary national currencies into this market in order for the big players to have, to have places that they can sell to. That is what is so... You know, they, they love to talk about banking the unbanked and democratizing finance and, you know, just when what they are trying to do is rip off the people who can least afford it 
everywhere. There, there's been some stories that have come out that some small countries, I think one of them in Africa, they actually had convinced some very poor people to put a lot of money into the Terra Luna, and now they're just completely wiped out. And, you know, that's one reason why it's very hard to celebrate, for me to celebrate when these things happen, because the people who are getting wrecked, you know, are the absolute people who can least afford it, which is the reason why the whole market needs to be shut down as quickly as possible. Yeah, they're in, in the reporting on the market crashing last month, people were talking about these crypto forums where you know, people are usually sharing tips. And instead, there were these became these like crisis chat forums where people were talking about, you know, losing all of their financial assets and people were sharing like suicide hotlines numbers on the forums because people are like, I'm just gonna have to kill myself and lose my house, lose everything. So I don't know if there's enough research into the who, who people are that own crypto, but I know the last time you were on, you you pointed out that a small minority of people, people own the vast majority of the cryptocurrency, right? Do we have a sense of like how many people like really were hurt by this crash? I don't know that I've seen stats on that, but I, I do think that it tends to be people with much smaller holdings. I mean, sure, people with big holdings can get hurt, but I think that they tend to be much more sophisticated about what they are doing and very manipulative, right? And, and just to pick up on one thing you said, it should not be a badge of honor that, in fact, the mainstream communities in which crypto is discussed, like the R Bitcoin subreddit or the R cryptocurrency subreddit, right, which are huge communities, that they regularly have to pin suicide hotline numbers to the tops of the forums because when stuff crashes, people have lost everything. That should be something that should be raising alarms in people. I mean, sure, that happens in other investments, too. But unlike ordinary investing, there is no discussion of the risks involved in, in these markets when they try to... Matt Damon comes on TV and says, fortune favors the brave, right? He doesn't even say, note, there is possibility of risk of losing your entire life savings if you put it into this stuff. I don't mean to laugh. It's horrible. Well, you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, some of the larger market forces or environment and, and markets outside of crypto that might have contributed to the proximate cause of this crash. And I'm curious if you have more to say about that. For one, like, these things are advertised as freeing themselves from the problems of ordinary money. And especially there's this, like, as you pointed out last time, this ideology in the cyber libertarianism that is similar or, or influenced by the sort of libertarian fear of central banking, right? And there's this idea that the cryptocurrency is going to be immune to the things that happen with ordinary money because, you know, central banks interfere with uh, national monies and all this stuff. But I mean, I've seen reporting that it was really the Federal Reserve beginning to respond to inflation that caused investors to take their investments out of speculative assets into safe assets, and that immediately triggers the crash in cryptocurrency, which would seem to mean that they're even more like volatile in the way they're tied to like central bank policy than even the, the normal money is. I couldn't agree more. I, it is a deep irony, right? That one of the supposed selling points of cryptocurrency is that it is a hedge against inflation and a stable... I mean, it's amazing, right? You have these stable coins, which overtly admit that they are trying to be stable, and they have to do that because cryptocurrency itself is incredibly unstable. And yet, to this day, you know, right now you could go on YouTube or Reddit and find in Twitter and find people selling their stuff like you need to get this stuff as a hedge against inflation when it is one of the most inflationary and deflationary things you can buy. And of course, it, it is closely linked to what happens in the rest of the financial markets, not least because, again, as a giant unregulated casino with none of the rules of regular or highly well-ordered markets, you have people all around the edge of the real the real financial system who have the assets to, to be able to invest in cryptocurrency and manipulate the markets they're just like sharks you know swimming around this entire sphere and they see opportunities to make money and they jump in and you know make huge amounts of money and to them you know they are sophisticated enough to know that no bitcoin is not a hedge against inflation bitcoin is an incredibly speculative asset right in many ways it's like a technology stock 
like a technology stack for a company that doesn't even really have a product. And there can be huge swings of momentum and investor emotion that make it go up and make it go down. And if you're a very, very sophisticated investor, you know, you might jump in and make some money off of that. But when the conditions turn, as it does when the Fed starts raising interest rates, you know, there's a saying on Wall Street that I learned back in my time there, don't fight the Fed. And what that meant was, it's very straightforward. If the Fed is lowering interest rate, that creates an environment where speculative investments are favored, so it's a good time to be in stocks. When the Fed is raising interest rates, that's an environment where stocks and other speculative assets are not favored, so it's a good time to get out of the market. That's the whole theory, and it works pretty well. I mean, as soon as the Fed started, you know, we've had a great bull market in stocks for many, many years, since 2008, really. And as soon as the Fed started raising interest rates, the stock market turned south. And, that, you know, you can't really time the market, but that is not an unexpected development. But, of course, it hit the speculative assets like Bitcoin, because they're even more speculative than Apple, Facebook, you know, all the all the Netflix, so all the technology stocks that people invest in, um, and it's been very interesting to watch the you know the industry publications try to talk about this. Like all of a sudden, they have to admit that if you look at, at the statistics, Bitcoin turns out to be highly correlated with the Nasdaq and the other you know speculative technology stocks, and it's not at all correlated with ordinary stores of of value like the dollar or even the Chinese renminbi or, or the pound, right? In fact, its value fluctuates like crazy. That's because there's nothing behind it. When you talk about technology stocks, there are actual production processes that, that, that underlie this. There is, you know, physical assets. So if you buy a technology stock, you're buying a share of a company that is engaging in production is going to engage in production and sale and they've got certain algorithms they've got certain technical know-how there's something there that you're owning a share of with this stuff there's nothing there but what's on the surface it's all just surface to, to my mind this is like the, you got an old shoelace and people are bidding up a, a, an old shoelace you know sky high well eventually it's going to come crashing down because you know it's just an old shoelace it's something to throw away there's there's nothing there i mean I, I understand exactly what you're saying but to compare this to to a technology company except the one where uh the woman just got convicted she had nothing behind it oh uh theranos yeah yeah so it's like that it one of the biggest supporters of Theranos, Tim Draper, who yeah. is a crazy libertarian, is also a huge Bitcoin promoter. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> These things seem to go together. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's like a speculative tech investment in a company that has promised that it's got, you know, something and it doesn't have anything, you know. <laughs> and if you try to talk to the Bitcoin people about this, the knots they will twist themselves into, you know, first they'll say something like, well, everything's a pyramid scheme. Everything's a Ponzi scheme. Stocks are a Ponzi scheme. And if you try to explain to them, sure, the trading markets are full of irrational behavior. But yes, you're buying a share of ownership in the company and the company actually means something. And by the way, if you were rich enough to buy every share, you would actually own the company in most cases, and that is not an insubstantial thing. I mean, the Bitcoin people like to use the term market capitalization to refer to the total value of all the outstanding tokens in any given cryptocurrency, because that is a term that is used in stock trading, right? The market capitalization of Apple is the price of its share times all the outstanding shares. But that number has meaning. If you could afford that entire market capitalization, you could literally buy the company. And presumably, when you buy bought all those shares, they would actually have as much value to you in owning the company as they did as shares of stock. Whereas if you were to go out and buy every Bitcoin in existence, it would actually tend to fall towards zero because you wouldn't own anything, right? You would own this, this smoke and mirrors. It would not confer to you ownership of any real thing in the world. And there, you know, why would anybody even want it at that point? You're completely right. It's a completely ludicrous comparison. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the general idea of of a bubble is is when the market price or value of the asset diverges from the intrinsic value of the asset, and what we're saying right is that the intrinsic value of this asset is zero. So you know, everything is a bubble, and it's only a question of how big a bubble it is in this market. 
Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Since the crypto crash, I've seen more news stories talking about fraud in the crypto world. There was just recently Madison Cawthorn, the now disgraced and um, on his way out of office, North Carolina GOP uh, congressman was exposed for participating in a pump and dump scheme around a meme coin called Let's Go Brandon, apparently. And I read accusations that the Luna Terra stablecoin situation was a target of a pump and dump. And that sounds like what you were alluding to. What is pump and dump? Where you where you do a variety of mechanisms to artificially inflate the price of a trading instrument while you are literally selling it. So you're often saying this thing is going to the moon, but actually what you're doing is selling it and hoping to get more people to come in who will buy what you're selling while you are lying about what 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 you say about. You can get invited into pump and dump schemes on any social media platform you want for crypto, not for regular stock, of course, because they're illegal. Oh wow. So it's like it's like out there in the open. People like say, "Let's do a pump and dump." Absolutely. Wow. So this is interesting to me because I, you know, from the outside, this cryptocurrency stuff seems so perfect for this kind of fraud. But I know that there are these like ideological adherents of cryptocurrency who are n- not just in it to use it for fraud, right? Well, so like, what? I, well, maybe at least at least there's this this verbiage. Maybe well, maybe you disagree. Maybe you think they're all just totally crooks. Like I, I I'm curious. Like how does this cyber libertarianism relate to this sort of naked opportunism and, and fraud and abuse? Are they just like two sides of the same coin? And and is it like out in the open? Are the people who are cyber libertarian crypto ideologues who are like upset by the fraud and abuse or they don't care about it i mean what's how does this is the inconsistency not important yeah i mean 
we could talk for a long time about the questions you just asked, but the, um, you know, to me, libertarianism is an umbrella term for a wide variety of sort of dogmatic ideas that people hold that are incoherent when try when you try to put them together. That doesn't mean that there aren't a few principled people in the world who try to actually make coherent philosophies out of them. But for the most part, they're just excuses for people who want to increase their own power and couldn't care less about other people, right? Uh, can see lots of interesting things online where people ask for de definitions of libertarianism in four words, right? And they're like five words, I got mine, F you, and things like that. So in the space of crypto, right, you have to ask yourself, what is the incentive for building an alternative financial system that is not subject to the regulations and rules that the regular financial system is, is subject to, right? And it, it seems pretty clear that in the main run, the people to whom that is going to appeal are people for whom those rules and regulations are, are, are some kind of barrier to doing what they want, right? So it is an open invitation to violating, you know, not just the rules and regulations, but the principles and everything on which the ordinary financial market is supposed to, is supposed to work. So the, the use case for people who don't want to break those rules is really minimal. Because if you don't want to break the rules, why would you not put your money in something that is insured and has chargebacks and, you know, pays a stable interest rate and all the things that the regular banking system can do and investing systems can do? So, you know, yes, they talk a lot about freedom and freedom from government, which is what they mostly mean. But, I mean, like you see in all these phenomena, to, you know, who does that appeal to? It appeals to people who, who want to break the rules for some reason. And for the most part, that is, th those are not savory people. And they are people for whom, like, let's take the pump and dump thing as an example. We were talking about it, right? That it may be the case that Bitcoin is not a security and it doesn't have a rate or an orderly securities market and therefore in some technical sense the pump and dump scheme is not illegal in the bitcoin market right but to most of us with any kind of sense of fairness or you know in people's uh, human rights of ordinary people like we would not want that scheme to happen what even if it was illegal that is just about defrauding people and yet here you have these celebrators of freedom. Like, look how great it is. We can run a pump and dump scheme over here that we can't run over in the regular stock market. Well, that is that is not a good thing. And, and sure, I can see why it appeals to whoever happens to get rich off the latest pump and dump scheme temporarily. But that is not freedom as I understand it. And you haven't really gotten yourself free from something that was overly coercive in the first place. Listeners of the podcast might remember we did an interview Maybe it was last year with Matthew Hongold's Hetling, the author of A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, which is a, a book about this libertarian utopian town that was uh, these uh, libertarians attempted to set up in Grafton, New Hampshire. It was an already existing town that they took over. You know, it wasn't like a utopian community they built in the middle of nowhere. They took over a town and just started defunding everything and not following any any laws and uh pretty soon bears started to like attacking people because of their inability to like dispose of food properly uh anyway it was it's a it was an interesting episode it's a good interesting book but it kind of reminds me of a similar situation where this ideological commitment to libertarianism quickly kind of degenerates into this unregulated disaster but also reminds me of like just the republican party right which you used to associate with like sort of, you know, fiscal conservatism with uh, shades of libertarianism. The Ron Paul-esque has just now degenerated into just this like fascist party all centered around like this huge fraudster grifter, Donald Trump, who's nothing but like a con man. The veneer of libertarianism like dissipates so quickly and turns into just like this she naked opportunism and, and uh, fraud. And destruction. I mean, if you look at the way that some of the more extreme people right now are talking about guns as a human right, but absolutely denying that guns ever caused the mass murders that they cause literally every day, you, you can't even understand how people can say these things with a straight face, and yet they say them every day. They, you know, to somebody like me, they are actively advocating for horrible acts of violence as if these are just necessary consequences of fully realized human rights. And, you know, your your head could explode. 
Um, so, you know, Bitcoin has crashed before and it's bounced back. And people who held on to their Bitcoin previous times when it crashed ended up making a lot of money when it went up again. So I assume there are people in the crypto world saying, hey, this is all going to bounce back. But I've also, you know, I've seen pieces saying that maybe this is finally like uh, the final reckoning and things are going to change. I, I don't, I'm not asking you to be a fortune teller here, but do you... Is there any chance of a reckoning this time? You seem to be indicating that, that like this stablecoin issue is maybe like the the linchpin of this whole thing. And if that falls apart, then maybe things are going to change with the way either crypto is regulated or public's perception of it as a safe investment. Um, like you said, I don't want to be a prognosticator. I would not, you know, I predicting the direction of financial markets is a fool's game and predicting like tech regulation is not much less of a fool's game. I do think that we are seeing some significant movement across both the U.S. government and the EU and in China and some other places that suggests that people are starting to see that this stuff really needs to be cracked down on. And contrary to the claims of the crypto people, I think it can be cracked down on. And I don't think that means you can necessarily eliminate it entirely, but I think you can make it so that um, most ordinary citizens of a given country are not going to think it's worth the risk to get involved with this stuff. And um, I do think stable coins are, you know, I think this event, because a lot of the people who were trying to talk to Congress and the parliament and so forth had already been very concerned about stable coins, I think the fact this event happened uh, is beneficial for that. I think it has woken people up to the dangers of, of stable coins in particular. And to make a small prediction, I hope they act soon because I think the, the forces that are trying to block it including the forces that are lobbying the U.S. Congress to not regulate it, are extremely powerful. And I think that if they don't get into it soon, the bleed-over between the regular financial markets and this giant, unregulated, complete, open casino is going to be terrible. And I, and I, you know, some people have talked about that crypto will be the site of the next 2008-type financial crash. And I don't think that is a, at all an unreasonable thing to worry about. You know, I mean, one can say we can't predict the future and so forth, but if this bubble does not burst, it will be the first such bubble in world history. Bubbles burst. So if I were making a bet, that's the, the bet that I would make. You know, with every financial crash and so forth, right? You, you get, oh, no, this we've got a new economy. The refrain is always, this time is different. You know, and this time is never different. So I'm, I'm very unsure about a lot of things, but I'm pretty damn sure that this time is not different. And that what's different is you got a big uh, internet and uh, social media out there, and you're able to, to scrape up all the rubes in the world uh, in one big package. But I think we do know where this is all going to end. Well, we know that the bubble will pop, but I mean, is there going to be a point where people are like, okay, cryptocurrency is we're done with this. So people are not going to stop investing in it, like the tulip bubble crashing, or, you know, people don't collect troll dolls anymore uh, and think that they're an asset. Are people going to stop collecting Bitcoin at some point and realize that it's all a scam? Or is it just going to bounce back every time it crashes? That's more what I was asking. But if, of course, we can't maybe predict that. But, but it sounds like, David, you're saying that it, it might be getting so dangerously big and so tied into the financial system that it's going to need to be regulated and people are going to need to start paying attention to it more closely. I think so. I think we're seeing financial regulators around the world start to express worries about contagion coming from the crypto markets, just like happened in 2008, right? These unregulated financial instruments that are subject to no particular law, where the laws exist in order to prevent huge bubbles from forming, that what happens in them, bubbles form. You know, huge bubbles, extreme bubbles, not just ordinary bubbles, you know, like maybe Tesla stock, but huge bubbles. And when they burst, they hurt all kinds of people. Yeah, they may hurt the big whales involved, but they hurt ordinary people much worse. And all the assets are ultimately backed by AIG, and AIG is a huge scam. Uh, I mean, what you were saying about Terra and Luna just sounded like, you know, this is on a somewhat smaller scale, just what we had with AIG. And unfortunately, the U.S. government said, you know, well, we got to 
pick them up. Uh, they're too big to fail. Uh, hopefully, they won't make that kind of mistake this time. Uh, it's, you know, you have seen some crypto people actually suggest that maybe the government should think about bailing them out. And at that point, you know, the history repeats again, but this time it's a tragic farce or something. You just can't even, how people can say that with a straight face is beyond beyond me. The, the last time we talked, we actually did have a conversation about non-fungible tokens, NFTs, uh, but we didn't have time to include it in the, the episode that was released. So I thought maybe if we had time, we could just do a, a quickly touch base about the NFT market. If people haven't followed the NFT craze or trend yet, these are basically, use, they use blockchain technology, but they're not cryptocurrency. These are digital assets that are basically just links to images usually, or they could be a sound file or a video, but usually it's a just a simple primitive graphic. And for some reason, this belief became attached to these non, non-fungible tokens that they were desirable assets that would increase in value. And this huge rush to try to sell NFTs started very recently, and you saw them marketed all over the place. Most of them, like I said, were just primitive images that like my kid could have drawn almost, right? Simple little cartoons. The person who buys one of these has no rights to like the royalties or intellectual property rights to the image. It's just that they have a digital file that they own one copy of, basically. And these things sell for like $60,000 and insane amounts of money for these, basically a link on a blockchain. Um, and of course, this market crashed uh, in March along with the crypto market. But I, I don't know if you want to improve upon my definition. Your definition was terrific. Maybe I could just add a few little stories here that might be of interest and maybe connect to what we were just talking about. That... Um, an NFT in and of itself does not confer ownership of the typically mildly adjusted image of a monkey that you bought, um, which, you know, mine has a green hat and yours has a red hat and, you know, somebody else's has a purple hat or whatever. And the idea that these are art is just so laughable. Um, but you, of course, when you sell somebody the NFT, you could also write a contract that gives them, quote unquote, ownership of that purple-headed monkey if you were the creator of the purple-headed monkey. And that happens in some cases. And I think we saw the actor and writer Seth Green, who bought a monkey image through, I think, through the Board 8 Piat Club, which is the biggest one of these NFT providers. And the way the contract, not the NFT itself, right, but the way the contract he signed was written said that whoever had physical possession of the NFT also owned the intellectual property rights to the image. And Seth Green had planned an entire Adult Swim, I think it was Adult Swim or another TV provider, a whole show around this image. And now he's crying that he has to give up his entire show because somebody stole the NFT for him and he no longer <laughs> owns the rights to the image. And you're just like, so it's stolen? Come on. Yeah, someone somehow got in and stole the the image and, and the NFT. Like somehow, and because the, the blockchain is immutable, the transaction that the person used to swipe the NFT from him can't be charged back, right? It's just the person stole it and now they own it. And that's where we are. And I, pretty much every actor in that transaction looks very bad. The idea that he needed to make a TV show about the one specific image that he owned, which was likely almost identical to tens of thousands of other images, you know, and it, it, the whole thing is laughable, right? And, and But it's sad. Um, so these people, they, 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 they were buying their like NFTs for like insane amounts of money and trying to find ways to hide them in their computers or in like safes or something, digital wallets, whatever their technology is to try to, you know, make sure they didn't lose their NFTs. But was there ever really a market for these things? Like were, were people, was there like after they bought the original NFT of the bored ape, were they actually selling it to other people? Or the people were just buying them from the original creator of the NFT and anticipating that the market was, that they were going to increase in value and that they would make money in the future. Like, did it get to the point where there actually was a market, like there's market for stocks or other assets? Or was it just like a big scam from the beginning? I mean, not, not only, I think you've actually given it too much credit because in fact, what seems to have happened is that 
the people who created these thousands of images of a bored ape actually went in and bought it from themselves in the first place in order to make it look like there uh. were transactions. And then they tried to unload it a second time. Uh. And in most cases, they've, of course, plunged to worthlessness. And I think that the, the most famous NFT of all, which was a link to Jack Dorsey's first tweet, which was the first tweet on Twitter, which sold for a high amount, a mm -hmm. large amount of money back in the early days of NFTs. And then the person who bought it tried to auction it um, through another auction service and has been unable, I think they, they, I may have the numbers wrong, but I think it was something like several hundred thousand dollars in the first transaction, and then they couldn't get it to over ten or twenty thousand dollars in the sub subsequent transaction, so it just completely lost its money. And um, another little, my second little story is related to this, which is I think just yesterday, one of the the former head of product at OpenSea, which was is one of the major NFT collection providers, was just indicted on fraud char charges and for exactly this kind of behavior. A wire fraud and money laundering in con connection with a scheme to commit in insider trading. Frighteningly, some reputable places like Sotheby's have gotten into this NFT marketplace. But for the most part, you know, what is sold as art on these marketplaces, you know, shows itself a remarkable kind of contempt for human creativity and uh, this isn't art, right? This isn't anybody's idea. I mean, maybe the whole project is some kind of weird performance art, <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> um, That's what it feels like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Jack Dorsey original first tweet, I could see that it has a certain claim to originality, and I can actually see somebody thinking that, you know, it'll go out up in, in, in value because it's one of a kind. But the purple-hatted monkey... That I don't get. I mean, what is what is the, 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 the mentality that would cause somebody to think that that was an investment? Let alone a work of art, which is how they talk about it, right? It's like, these are not people who actually are interested in art. Well, look, most of the art market is like that. So I've discounted, you know, quality and, 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 and artistic values and stuff. But most of the people who buy whatever kind of art, they're looking to hold value, sell for more value. But I, that's why I just don't get the purple-hatted monkey thing at all. What, what, what's going on? I wish I could explain it. I mean, it's it, one would need to do a deep dive on this, but there's something going on with the concept of fungibility and the crypto community. Money is fungible, right? It's one of the first things we learn as uh, basic accounting students or in many fields of finance. It doesn't matter, you know, if, if you loan me a dollar and then I pay you back the dollar a week later, it doesn't really matter if it's the same dollar bill you loaned me or a different dollar bill. All you care is that I gave you the value back. And cryptocurrency, because every transaction has this unique signature, can be thought to be non-fungible. But it isn't really non-fungible. Right? You actually don't care if you give me one Bitcoin and then I give you another Bitcoin. You, know, you loan me one Bitcoin and a week later, I just like the dollar, I give you a Bitcoin back. You don't really care that it's the same cryptographically signed Bitcoin that you loaned me or another one, right? And they, these people have such a poor and strange understanding of finance that I think they decided they needed to create a market in things that were non-fungible to show the utility of Bitcoin's amazing blockchain crypto stamp of every transaction. And I think they just, they have no idea what they're doing, right? I mean, I, there are some surveys that have come out recently about um, the knowledge level of crypto investors, right? And they tend to know way more about crypto than the ordinary, but much less about the markets that they claim to be participating in than the ordinary person, especially finance. You know, and they can't afford to learn at this point, right? They've invested a huge amount of their their savings or their personas or you know their emotions in this fake market, and they got to do anything to keep that going. And in fact, to, to go back to an earlier question, the, um, the persistence of the NFT market, it worries me as a place that crypto, you know, and I think this is why it exists, crypto, NFTs and the metaverse and um, Web3 and all this stuff. I think it exists because it's a new place for crypto to go if the financial part of it gets somehow turned off by regulators. And it is even more disconnected from reality than cryptocurrency is. And that is very, very worrisome politically, economically, and in every other way. Uh, you alluded to this earlier, but just a few months before the cryptocurrency market crashed, it seemed like there was a flood of television commercials and other sorts of celebrity endorsements of 
cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. There was this Larry David commercial I kept seeing for many weeks. There was this moment where Jimmy Kimmel had Paris Hilton on his show and they were pitching you know, bored apes to the audience. You know, just a few months after all of this rush of advertising around crypto, the markets crashed. And it left me wondering, was this like some anticipation that the people on top had that they were running out of people to buy this stuff, that the pyramid scheme was fa- failing and they needed to find more people to, to, to fill in the bottom of the pyramid? Or was it like part of this large scale pump and dump where they saw that the value was about to fall in the markets and they wanted to just like keep people buying while they were planning to sell? There could have been. I, I don't know stories about it necessarily um, in the sense of foreknowledge, but I think the the actual knowledge of what was happening at the time was part of what you said, which is that there's an awareness that there weren't enough new people coming into crypto in order to accept the selling that the big whales wanted to do. So they needed they need to attract more fresh blood in in order to dump their, their stuff on other people. And that's part of what is so upsetting about the tone of those ads, which is so bullying toward people who really don't know what they're ta- you know, what they're getting into. The Larry David ad was so horrible. It was so it was so arrogant. And it was like yes. full of that like cryptocurrency arrogance about the basically the gist of it was look at all the, the times in history where people said this new idea wasn't going to work. And what, the ad went on forever. It was like Galileo and then Gutenheim or something. It was like all these different times in history where people said, oh, that's not going to work. And they turned out to be, look, everyone's laughing at them now, right? But look who's laughing now, Larry David. Anyway, it was ridiculous. I mean, these were pretty brazen endorsements, right? They aren't just the ordinary, you know, selling uh, an energy drink or something. And it, the Times and other journalists have gone back to some of these celebrities and said, what do you what do you think about the fact that you have been really bullying people into trying into doing something that is extremely risky and people lose all kinds of, of money in it? And in some cases, there, I think somebody like um, Paris Hilton, right, is actually uh, may have a direct personal investment in cryptocurrency as well as selling it at the same time. And, and the celebrities just been completely silent about in response to any inquiry about um, don't you have some responsibility to because of course these celebrities do vet the things they do advertisements for you know they tend not to advertise for stuff that is really at odds with whatever their personal beliefs are and it's very hard to believe that any of them could think that this was a good idea Larry David himself said he didn't know anything about cryptocurrency which I might well be true but like then Maybe you should have done some research before you went and, you know, said, well, if I mean, the thing about that Larry David commercial, right, the, the, the principle you can take from this is, well, if people are criticizing something, it must be the next Galilean invention. Like, <laughs> can we go over examples of where people correctly criticize right. that yeah. actually scams? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.